Hi, I'm Emma. I'm Sean. Welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast, the podcast for the Student Science Communication Society at the University of Cambridge. You might have read our magazine or heard our radio show before, but this is our new project, a place where we discuss some of the content of the magazine in more detail, share some interesting research we come across, and any exciting things going on to do with science in Cambridge. On the show today, Sean talks to Timothy Gregory, a finalist on the BBC's Do You Have What It Takes programme with Chris Hatfield. And I'll be interviewing Lucy Spokes from the university's public engagement team about what's on in this year's Science Festival in Cambridge. Thanks, Emma. Yes, so one of the articles in our recent magazine, Blue Ski Issue 41, focused on an interview with Timothy Gregory, a cosmochemist who had recently featured on the BBC's astronaut selection program, Do You Have What It Takes?, Uh, That was with Chris Hadfield, reaching the very final stage of this competition. On the show, Tim was put through a variety of high-pressure tasks designed to emulate, or often directly copied from, real astronaut selection tests, including having to fly a helicopter with only two hours warning and spending several days performing tasks underwater. I was lucky enough to speak with Tim about his experiences on the show, and about his field more generally. Hello. Hi, Tim. Hi, Hello. this is uh, Sean from Blue Ski here. Hey, Sean, how's it going? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Good, the perfect timing, I've just left the building. <laughs> so we talked for a little while about the show and about Tim's PhD in cosmochemistry. And I thought I'd ask Tim first about his motivation behind his choice of career and behind deciding to appear on the show. Oh my gosh, what a question to start with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think curiosity is the is is the most important thing. It, it's been the ever it's been the ever present theme in my sort of life so yeah. far. It's um it's the reason I took an interest in science to begin with as a child. It's the reason that I worked hard and paid attention in high school and my A levels. Um, and it's the reason why I'm still continuing to do science now after my undergraduate degree that curiosity and just that, that interest in the natural world has, um, has really driven my, my life until now. I've never really been out of an academic setting. Um, and it, it, drives my, it drives my hobbies as well. Because with, um, with doing a geology degree, for example, I uh, spend a lot of time in the field, outdoors, seeing amazing things in nature, and that really feeds into my interest in hiking and, and navigation and stuff like that. Right, so you'd say that... Um that it's important, you know, for you to get to experience things physically in nature for your motivation of science. Yes, yes. I um I like to see it myself. Yeah. I sort of do it myself as well. As the conversation moved on and we got to talking more about Tim's career, I found myself wondering about the field of cosmochemistry. Even as someone who studies the earth sciences myself, it seemed a pretty niche area to go into looking at meteorites and doing a lot of geochemical analysis to figure out questions like how the Earth's crust separated from the mantle or how the moon formed from the Earth. So I asked him how he'd got into the field and whether his love of geology and rocks had come from the same source as his love of space. Oh, yeah, it comes from the same source. I mean, as, as a kid, I was interested in everything. I think I went through a phase of everything. I, mean, I was a keen bird watcher as a child. Um, I've since recently in the last few years, just started getting back into that as well. I 
having to do a cloud spotting phase, a mushroom identification phase. <laughs> um, I was just interested in so much stuff. Uh, but but rocks is always it's always been there. I've always had a mineral collection and a rock collection. Loved. I bought a little toffee hammer once and used it as a. I thought it was a fossil hammer at the time <laughs> when I was much younger and used to collect fossils. And um, and I remember when I was younger, I used to. I, my mum bought me a cabinet from IKEA, one of those cheap sort of pop up plywood cabinets, and I made a little museum exhibit in my bedroom, labelled all the specimens, and had a little specimen book where. Um, I'd write about them where I got them and print off geological timelines. I made this little wow. exhibition of rocks in my in my room. And I've always just been fascinated with them. And I'm really lucky that that, that fascination has been encouraged. It's, it never got stamped out of me. So would you say it's it's curiosity more so than, like, adventure? You know, I mean, obviously you, you did this astronaut selection program. So, you know, is, is that sort of challenging yourself to sort of push frontiers also important? Or is it? Yeah, de- definitely, and I think that that is a, a side effect of the curiosity, the, the adventure that comes from it, and the pushing the frontiers and going to new places, is a consequence of trying to satisfy that curiosity. It's almost like the curiosity is the fundamental thing. That's the cause, and the effect is the adventure. Eventually, we got around to talking about the TV show, and I asked him how long the whole process had taken, because I didn't think that was clear when the show came out in summer 2017. Um, it, it took almost two months. Okay, so quite intense then, really. Very intense, yeah. yeah. Wow. It was, um, it was not just the tests that were draining. <laughs> the, the, amount, the amount of waiting that we did as well was draining, and we had no phones. They took our phones off of them. So we, we only had each other. Part of the reason why we all grew so close so fast and not not having any contact with the outside world was a a big advantage. I'm very very glad that it was that way because it allowed us all to focus on the on the process and be totally immersed in it. Would you say that you try to avoid technology sometimes now because of that experience? Um, I was I was so I used to be really bad. I mean, I'm part of the smartphone generation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but over the last couple of years, particularly since I started doing my PhD. Um, I'd turned my smartphone into a stupid phone, deleted most of the apps, um, don't have emails on my phone, I don't have Facebook anymore, I don't have notifications switched on on my phone apart from phone calls and text messages. Um, I think it's um, it's very easy to be sucked in by that sort of technology, and it's one of the bad things about it. So I'm really glad that there was absolutely no temptation there during, during selection. I was wondering about that. How important was pre-preparation for the tasks in the show? Like, how much went on behind, off-camera, that we didn't see? Yeah. Not much. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> we, 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 we didn't find out a lot of the tests until we were in the room about to do it. Oh, I see, right. So you're just thrown in the deep end, right? Absolutely. You had no idea what you were doing. Yeah. Um, for some of them, you had maybe, like, a few hours' notice. But again, there was nothing you could do to prepare for it. For example, the helicopter test. Yeah. It was a couple of hours between finding out <laughs> I was going to be doing that and me sat in the cockpit behind the cyclic, <laughs> as it were. Uh, yeah. And there was nothing I could have possibly done in that few hours to prepare for it, which was, um, again, it was interesting. There was more, a lot of the time, it felt like they were testing our innate ability and our natural ability at a particular test, but also our ability to adapt and have, yeah. a, have a good crack at a new thing. And how important do you think that 
mental component is where do you find you need focus to stay in the right frame of mind or do you relax and trust your innate ability as you say i i fall more on the side of relaxing and trusting myself on on that spectrum not that i not that i'm complacent not that i didn't spend that time getting in the zone and thinking about what was going to come in my experience panicking is only you know, it's only detrimental. It's never, never good. I've gotten really good during my PhD, actually, of taking things in my stride, not panicking, keeping calm, because that's when I perform best. When I'm enjoying myself, that's when I perform best mm. in anything. Um, and gosh, did I enjoy myself during filming. It was amazing. It was so cool. And I remember thinking to myself several times during the process that, Martin, this is going to be so short-lived. It's going to be over before you know it. You could be going home tomorrow. So make, make the most of it. And that was only not good for me because I enjoyed it, but it was good for my performance as well because I just seem to perform best when I'm enjoying myself. After talking about the show for a while, I thought I'd ask Tim whether he thought it was important that astronauts be scientists or that scientists be astronauts. I also asked him what he thought about whether more people would be getting to go to space in our lifetimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is, so when when they're placing together, when they're choosing astronauts to go into the International Space Station, they're not doing it on a person-by-person basis. They essentially are assembling a crew, team, made of individuals. And in that team, you need people with different areas of expertise. Everyone has to have the same sort of baseline level of, of competence in things like navigating spacecraft and flying them and operating machinery. But people do have their own specialisms. And I think increasingly now, as space exploration is becoming more and more accessible, because they're learning how to get to space and live in space all the time with the International Space Station, I think that people are going to be able to become more specialised in certain areas. I like to think about um, air travel as a good example of something that, if you wanted to be on an aeroplane 100 years ago, you needed to be a skilled pilot. You needed to be skilled in the craft of flying an, air, an aircraft. But now you can have two people who are experts, the two pilots, carrying a thousand people who know next to nothing about physics <laughs> uh, or how to fly an aeroplane. And I think that that is the way that space exploration is going to be heading. Now, Tim was by far the youngest candidate in the final of the show, and very young for the show overall. Sometimes the narration discussed this with reference to his performance, and I thought I'd ask him about one event in particular during the helicopter flying test. The BBC show mentioned you played video games when you were younger. Uh, <laughs> do you think... So I think that that was slightly exaggerated <laughs> in, in the edits. I wasn't like a video game addict or anything. I, I occasionally played a little bit yeah. on my PC, but not yeah. that much. They put my success on the helicopter down to video games, but I'm going to beg to differ and put it down <laughs> to my, my steady hand with a, with a pipette in the lab because I'm, I'm forever pipetting pressure samples and, um, and concentrated acids. For that, you need, you need a rock-solid steady hand. Um, and the cyclic stick in the helicopter was about the same size as the pipette that I use in the lab. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm going to put it down to that, which sounds slightly more academic than video games. <laughs> Maybe I'm biased. Finally, I thought I'd ask Tim what he had to say to people who had ambitions to become astronauts themselves, or indeed any other kind of exploration scientist.
Yeah, sure. So, just sticking with astronauts for a second, the two main pieces of advice that I would give to somebody, first and foremost, acknowledge that it's probably never going to happen. It's such a slim chance of becoming an astronaut that it's, it's not worth banking on it. It's not worth pinning your definition of success on that ultimate goal because you're probably going to be very disappointed if you do that. However, having said that, my second piece of advice is go for it anyway. <laughs> if, you throw the, if you throw the towel in before you've even begun, you, you've reduced your chances to zero. Whereas at least if you try, they might still be small, but they're definitely bigger than zero. And it's really important as well to think about the journey that you're going to go on to try and get to that level where yeah. you can where you can fly in space and be part of a crew. Um, the, the journey to get there will see you acquire so many skills and have so many experiences and meet so many people that you otherwise wouldn't have that it's almost an end in itself rather than the means to an end. It's, it's a win-win situation. You know, if you learn another language, learn how to fly an aircraft <laughs> on Earth, learn how to dive, become a, I don't know, an expeditioner, a mountaineer, scientist, a pilot, whatever it is, you're going to have a good life. You're going to have an interesting life and do interesting things. So it's a win in itself, even trying to become an astronaut. That's the best thing about it. Tim was generous to indulge me, and we talked a bit more, but eventually he had to go work on his PhD, and I'd taken up enough of his time anyway. But you can read more about the interview with Tim in Blue Size Lent Term 2018 issue, which is issue 41. Also look out for the Easter Term issue, which will have more interviews with people as enjoyable to talk to as Tim. And now we're going to go to our first research highlight section of the podcast, where we talk about some interesting science we've recently come across. So, Emma, what have you got for us? So this comes from a paper that is published in the March edition of the Journal of Experimental Medicine. So I was surprised to learn that, despite the fact that tattooing has been practiced for a really long time, and actually the archaeological traces of tattoos on human remains that date back thousands of years, Actually, the biology behind why tattoos persist in the skin for so long is still unclear. We know that injected pigments, which are mostly small metal salts, get taken up by cells in the skin dermis, which is a skin layer that sits just underneath the skin surface. However, it's not clear where those pigments go and what happens to them once those cells die. So what this group did is they basically took mice and gave them and they managed to identify the particular cell type which took up the tattoo pigment and they show it's a type of uh, dermal immune cells Mm. and then they use a kind of quite complicated genetic engineering to specifically destroy this pool of cells while leaving the other cells intact what they saw was that instead of diffusing out the released pigment particles remain in the dermis where they were progressively recaptured by a new set of cells coming in to replenish the lost population. So originally it was kind of thought that perhaps pigment harbouring cells were just very long-lived, and that was why the tattoos wouldn't fade. Yeah. But actually these new findings um, would suggest that maybe tattoos stay in the skin for a long time because the pigments can be transferred from one cell to the next without affecting the overall tattoo appearance. 
I'm not actually these two hypotheses are not technically mutually exclusive. Wow. But yeah, I like the thought of a mouse getting into two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really cool. I hadn't thought of that. So that it's it's the cell. The cells, even if they die, they get replaced by a different cell, which will yeah. come in and take on the color that the yeah. that the last cell had. Exactly. That's incredible. So, obviously, it's all done in mice, so it hasn't been technically proven in human. Though. Right, yeah. To be confirmed. <laughs> so, what about you? Have you come across anything interesting recently? Yep. So, I've heard about this eGrip project. So, it's these... Scientists who drill ice cores in Greenland, they've... Well, so they always go there every summer and they drill ice cores. This time, uh, they had to move their station from from the Neem station, which was uh, just a name to do with, you know, what they were drilling. They had to move it 500 kilometers across Greenland to get to the northeast, where they want to study next. And so what they did to do this, they, they stuck the whole lab... It's a big, huge dome, and they stuck it on skis... <laughs> And just dragged it across, for, for the whole 500 kilometers, dragged it across the ice sheet and, and stuck it down. And every night, when they stopped dragging, they could get in the lab and they could sleep in there. And then they could drive on. It was fantastic. That's really insane. cool. <laughs> and then uh, when they got there, what they do is they build an underground compound to kind of live in and keep their stuff in uh, when they work there. Because they, they go for a whole field season. And they used to have to dig it, and then they would put a roof in manually with, like, wood and metal, which was expensive because they had to fly that in on a plane. Uh, and now they, what they did was they basically brought a massive balloon with them, which apparently the only company that makes these balloons actually, they make them for brewing companies. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what they use them for, but so this, they, these balloons that are made, used, intended for beer, and they, they dig a massive hole... Then they stick the balloon in, and it's like 40 meters long. They inflate the thing, and then they dump the snow back on top. And then they wait for it to kind of harden. And so you've got an automatic tunnel of ice. And so they can really quickly, really easily build uh, these tunnels. And not only is it quicker and easier, and more environmentally friendly and cheaper, because you don't have to transport all the metal and, and wood, it's stronger too, because it's got an arch shape. And they can fix it because it's just snow, so they can just hack away at it. And it's, it's better in every way. It's genius. And so the first field season at EGRIP, which just means East Greenland Ice Core Project, was in 2015. The next one's going to be this summer, 2018. Uh, you know, loads of climate scientists are going to go out there, drill the ice cores, and, yeah, use it for a whole lot of stuff. Figure out climate change records in the past Earth and, you know, all the stuff they do with ice. Okay, next up we have Emma's interview with Lucy Spokes about this year's Cambridge Science Festival. Okay, so I'm joined today by Dr. Lucinda Spokes, who is the Public Engagement and Festival Manager for Scientists uh, for the University of Cambridge. Lucy, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat to us about the upcoming Cambridge Science Festival. I know it's very busy at the moment <laughs> for you, so I really appreciate it. Um, so I was hoping we could uh, just start this conversation by introducing the Science Festival to our listeners, because some of them might not have gone to the festival before, and give them a little bit of an idea of the scale of the event, yeah. so how many years you've been running for, 
how many visitors you get every year, that kind of stuff. Yeah, certainly. So we're in our 24th year. Well, okay. Uh, so it's one of the longest running science festivals in England, certainly uh-huh. not in the country. Scotland got there before us on this. Um, so we run for two weeks uh, in March each year, linked to the British Science Week. Um, this year we're running from the 12th to the 25th of March. And we have 327 events on over those 14 days. So it's a rather mammoth, yeah. <laughs> mammoth festival. Um, last year, similar number of events, and we had 62,000 um, visits to the festival. So that's not individual people, because lots of people come many times. Um, but 62,000 interactions between members of the public and research, research staff here at the University of Cambridge. So it's rather fabulous numbers in that respect. Yeah, so we, yeah, we, we're... We're quite long established and quite a popular festival. Yeah, um, I suppose it's, it's two weeks, but it's probably an all year long yeah, job. So, yeah. yeah, so it takes me pretty much the whole year to put the whole thing together, mm-hmm. working with um, team here, but also with researchers across the university to put the thing together. And we work with around a thousand research, members of research staff in this university, mm-hmm. in institutes, um, in chari- with charities and with companies around Cambridge. And so you run a mix of, it's like talks and more hands-on activities during yes. the day as well. So talks mostly in yeah. weekday evenings, yeah. um, designed for teenagers, adults and upwards. Um, and then at the weekends, a mixture of talks, hands-on activities. We have exhibitions in the li- libraries and in the museums. We have films. We work with Cambridge Junction on a series of performance, science performance-related activities for the festival. Um so a huge variety of different things science comedy um so hopefully there's something for absolutely everybody and how do you decide on the activities or the events that you run do you tend to approach people do people come to you with a specific idea that might want to put on or a mix of both it's a mix of both so i centrally um develop around 20% of the programme um, and so that's probably the most interesting exciting bit of my job um, so I get the chance to meet researchers from across uh, the university and pick places like Babram Research Institute and uh, the Welcome Genome Campus and companies, things people like AstraZeneca and Illumina and I will I, I work with them on ideas for talks and for activities and then other organisations and members of, of the university approach us the festival's around two-thirds university contributions and around a third external organisations. Okay. So, you know, a whole mix, all with a f- base focused here in Cambridge. So it's a real celebration of the science that goes on here in Cambridge, both Cambridge University and Ruskin University are one of our big partners, but then the research institutes and the companies around us. And what do you hope people will take from the festival general enthusiasm for science or just have fun learn something new well our aims are to 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 showcase the incredible science that goes on here in um in cambridge but most importantly to give people the chance to speak directly Mm -hmm. to researchers so to speak to the experts um both to hear their opinions and, and their thoughts on where science is going nowadays, but also for the chance to share their views as well, mm-hmm. so that it's a two way exchange of ideas, information. Um so that so that our scientists are aware of how other people think about this and can understand um other people's views on their research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean I think especially today in you know, in a world where news can travel so fast and misinformation can travel really fast as well uh 
being able to, you know, directly interact with yeah. experts in the field in a way that is, you know, accessible and, and fun as well. Yeah, so one of our main goals in terms of public engagement as a whole, not just through the festivals, yeah. is to build trust yeah. and transparency in the and, and involvement in the research process. A lot of the work we're trying to do, um, in, both in the festivals and in public engagement generally, is to provide these opportunities for people to share knowledge and information. Um, is there a particular event that you... Oh, looking forward to this year. Is there a particular well, talk that you're interested in? I'm, I'm very, very excited that we have two Nobel Prize winners this year. Yeah. So we have Rich Henderson uh-huh. from uh, MRC Laboratory of Molecular yeah. Biology. That's where I work. <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, when, when um, public engagement at uh, uh, LMB said, would we like? And it was like, oh, yes, of course, please. <laughs> so we're absolutely delighted that Richard Henderson's speaking. And we've also got Sir Paul Nurse speaking yeah. to a geneticist. Um, he won a Nobel Prize a few years ago. So extremely excited about having two Nobel Prize winners. We've also got Dame Sally Davis, who's um, Chief Medical Officer, and Jane Dacre, who's the President of the Royal College of Physicians, talking about uh, genomics and the future of medicine, which is a really interesting subject. Um, I'm a climate scientist by background, okay. and I get told off a little bit about putting too much climate into the festivals, <laughs> but we have um, the penultimate um, event for the climate change, uh, Cambridge Climate Lecture Series, um, uh, which is the panel discussion called Climate Changes Now, with which is features Sir David King. Um, so really excited about um, that panel discussion. Um, we've got lots of contributions from British Antarctic Survey and their links to climate research here at Cambridge. So I'm excited about those ones particularly. And then we're also um, looking at how, how light is made um, with Dave Ansell from formerly of the Naked Scientists. Um, so we're blowing things up on the Babbage stage. Um, <laughs> We've got fish. We're looking at how you can how space really wants to kill you with Michael Parker, who's formerly from Institute of Astronomy. Code breaking. So there's masses of things that are really. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing as part imagine. of it. Well, I'm hopefully seeing as part of the festival. Yeah. we'll be running around trying to make sure everything's going okay. Oh, uh, but, brilliant! Yeah. I look forward to it. Yeah. Moving away from uh, the festival a little bit. So you come from a academic background originally. Um, and I was wondering what made you decide to move out of academia and more into the public engagement side of things. So I'm I'm from a a very different generation to you, (laughs) Um, and certainly when I was a PhD student and a postdoc, and I was a postdoc for rather too many years, and I would never advise anybody to do a postdoc for 14 years, Um, but I was very lucky, I had a fabulous time. Um, We really didn't have to talk to anybody about uh, apart from our colleagues about thing and it um and I think it's a really bad it was a really bad place to be I think everybody should be able to explain what they do and why they do it and so I've always throughout my research career always wrote for the general non non specific scientific audiences um you know it was, and I'd always write I'd always comment with journalists and I'd always write for news, articles in for newspapers and things but there's no requirement and what I, I, you know, I'm really delighted now that there is much more of an emphasis on sharing our research more widely. Um, so I jumped at the chance. My last postdoc was a European Union funded education research grant. And it was a time of great climate change scepticism. And I'd love to say, you know, we've moved past that, but unfortunately, <laughs> things, things have changed. And as a result of uh, what's going on across the pond, um, there is still scepticism about climate change. Um, but we put together the first peer-reviewed climate, um, it, climate encyclopedia for the web in the 
eighties, nineties. Um, so it was. So we wrote the science part. Um, we worked with educationalists and we worked with teachers to put together a package of information for the general public and for schools. And I, that to me was the first time where I actually felt like what we were doing potentially had an impact on how people thought about the research mm-hmm. that we did. Yeah. Um, I moved from there into working in schools, taking science activities into schools. And as part of my job there, we used to run events for Cambridge Science Festival. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so now, f- from running a single event, I now uh, coordinate and manage 320 of other people's events. Um, I think it's really important that every scientist should be able to say what they do and why they do yeah. it to every audience, to anybody at all. Um, I think we, most of our research is publicly funded and I think we have a duty to, to do that. Hopefully we provide here, provide ways in which we make it as straightforward as possible for you. We can provide training for people. Um, but I think if we want people to be able to make decisions they need to be informed and they need to be feel that their views are listened to and that something happens as a result of them sharing their Mm -hmm. views if people want to learn more about the festival uh perfect (laughs) where can they find that information so our science festival website is sciencefestival.cam.ac.uk we are on the phone on 01223 766 766. Um, have a look. We're on Twitter at Cam Science and Facebook Cambridge Science Festival. Um, tickets, almost all tickets are free. We only um, There's only a few performances in theatre that um, are charged, um, uh, but there's still lots of tickets left for quite a few events, so please get booking. <laughs> Thanks again to Lucy for chatting to us. That's the end of the podcast. Um, We'd like to thank our guests again for joining us, and thanks to you guys for tuning in. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at bluesidepodcasts at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at bluesidepods, where we'll tweet out the details of the papers we've talked about today and some more interesting news science stories. Awesome. See you next time. See you next time.